I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be leaving 1 John for a few weeks, and we're going to uh, do some Christmas messages over these next few weeks. You know, I love some of the traditions that, are, that, fam- that I hear from families during Thanksgiving and Christmas. And um, uh, one of the traditions we have in our family is uh, Kathy makes these homemade rolls, uh, and they've come to be called Marie's Butterhorn Rolls. They're really good. Everyone in our family loves them. Um, our daughter, Laura, uh, lives on the East Coast, and she uh, asked Kathy for the recipe. She wanted to make it for a Thanksgiving they were hosting, and so she did, and people loved him. And on Thanksgiving Day, Kathy got a text, and the text was, who's Marie? And um, Kathy was thinking it was a great aunt, but found out it was her uh, great-grandmother, her paternal great-grandmother who uh, had the recipe. She probably got it from somebody else. But anyway, that's Marie. Um, So let me ask you, show of hands here, uh, how many of you can name the first name of all four of your grandparents? Okay, good. A lot of of hands up. That's great. How many of you could name uh, the eight, uh, eight first names of all your great-great-grandparents. Not as many, um, maybe none. There were quite a few in the first service. Um, Wouldn't it be fun to meet them and sit down and have a meal with them? Some of you are going, I don't think so. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, But, you know, we may not know them, but God has used them to shape, in some ways, who we are, for for sure for us to to be here physically. Um, So, we can be thankful, but when you get, even for somebody who's a, a genealogy enthusiast, it doesn't take going back many generations for things to get pretty fuzzy. We're just not sure about that. I don't even know, I can't even imagine drawing a, a line of 40 generations, which is what we have, what we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 1. Maybe the only people who are really motivated to go back and do that are royalty, uh, because their power doesn't come from a vote. Their power is inherited by birth. And so their birthright is really important. Matthew begins with a genealogy, uh, tracing Jesus' legal ancestry back to Abraham through King David. Um, The purpose really, and this is on your outline, of Matthew chapters one through four, is really to direct our focus to the announcement and arrival of the king. Uh, By the end of these first chapters, Matthew wants all of his readers to be clear that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who comes in the line of David, who is from the line of David, and that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, what we are celebrating at Christmas. And so it makes sense that Matthew would begin with proof, the proof that Jesus is the legal heir to the royal line of David and also the one to inherit the covenant blessing of Abraham. 
If you're reading through the New Testament for the first time and you start with Matthew, it's a little bit confusing for someone who has no idea why all these names are here. We, we skip over them. Um, but there is value and there is a purpose for this genealogy. Uh, and you're probably thinking, why does the New Testament even start like this? Couldn't he have started somewhere else and put this a little bit later because it's losing me? Well, Matthew wrote to, to the Jews. And to a Jewish reader, if someone said they were the Messiah and didn't prove it by their royal lineage, then their claim would be null and void. It would be worthless. If a first century Jewish skeptic on the other hand, read this genealogy, they'd be impressed because this was documented proof that would keep them reading. So I want to begin with verse 1, so follow along in your Bible and as we read uh, to begin with the first six verses. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This is God's word. We're going to stop there. I I want us to see that the gospel permeates every line of this genealogy. We could go through and talk about a number of those that are listed here, but I want us to focus on some places where I think we see God's grace shine through in a really significant way. So the first thing we see in these verses is that Jesus is the king of grace, What is grace? We need to ask that question if we're going to call Jesus the king of grace. Grace is a constant theme in the Bible. And it culminates in the New Testament with Christmas, with the coming of Jesus. And grace means favor or blessing or kindness. Grace is is God choosing to bless us rather than curse us as our sin deserves. Grace is God giving the greatest treasure to the least deserving, and that's every one of us. We all can identify with the Apostle Paul when he says in 2 Timothy that he is the chief of sinners. We're all the chief of sinners. We're all sinners. Uh, The people that God the Father chose to be part of the genealogy of God the Son reveal to us the miracle of of grace, and it gives us great hope. Uh, So verse one begins again like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So to prove that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, it would have, it, they would have to prove that Jesus was the heir of the promise to Abraham and that he was the legal descendant of David. So for example, <clears throat> if Jesus had been from some other country, if he'd been Greek and had not been from the same tribe as David, who was from the tribe of Judah, if he had been Jewish and from some other tribe, then it would, have been autom- it would have automatically disqualified him from being the Messiah. Matthew first mentions David in verse one. David, I think most of us know his story. He was a sinner. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then made it worse by having her husband Uriah murdered so he could marry her. And David was a warrior king who could not build the temple because of that. It says in 1 Chronicles 22, but this is the word of the Lord, but this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many, many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But in spite of all of his flaws, The account of David's life is a powerful example of God's mercy to those who seek him with a sincere heart. David was from the tribe of Judah and his heirs would have the legal right to the throne. And David's mentioned in verse one because of that. And this message we hear from David is of God's amazing grace that's greater than our sin. And David David had a lot of ups and downs in his life. But when he repented, when he turned back to God, he experienced restoration. And we see God's undeserved favor in giving second chances, and a lot of them, to David. This opportunity for redemption. And so David writes in Psalm 51, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, have you, are you struggling with sin, with some sin in your life? And you keep going back to the Lord and asking for forgiveness? I want you to know that, and God wants you to know through the life of David, that when you sincerely seek God and confess your sin and repent and turn from your sin and trust Christ, there is forgiveness. That's what David experienced in in Psalm 51. That's what he lived. And that's a great reminder to us of the grace of God. And we're not even halfway through verse 1. So then after that, he mentions Abraham. So how do we see God's grace and mercy evident in the life of Abraham? Well, when God gave Abraham a covenant in Genesis 12 saying that he would make him the father of a great nation, that wasn't based on anything that Abraham did. It was all about God's divine favor. Abraham trusted God, but he didn't didn't bring something else. It wasn't because of what he did. You know, we've said this before, I've said this many times up here, all you need for salvation is grace plus nothing. And most people don't have nothing. Most people want to say to God, look what I'm bringing to you, look at how faithful I've been, look at how much I read the Bible and how much I pray. God, you, you must answer my prayer, because look at all I'm doing to earn it. 
That's not the way God works. Our God is a God of grace and mercy and we come to him and we receive it. When somebody gives you a Christmas gift, uh, when you give someone a Christmas gift, what do you want them to say? You want them to say thank you very much. And that's it. What if they dig in their wallet and they say, well, how much was the gift? I want to pay you for it. You're like, it's a gift. Just receive it. And, and, and they say, no, I insist. I want to pay you for it. How much is it? That's a slap in the face when you've given someone a gift. How do you think God feels when we come to him and we say, hey, I'm bringing all my, my prayer time and my, my time of worship and all the time I'm at church and all the service I've done to you, so you need to answer my prayer. It's like we put God in our debt. No, that's not the way it works. God loves us. He is inviting us to come back and experience true life in him. And then the birth of Isaac is one of the most remarkable evidences of God's unmerited favor in the life of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were very old. They were long past being able to have children. But God, in his kindness, miraculously enables Sarah to bear children. And, uh, and they give birth to Isaac. And that's, again, by the grace of God. And God shows his merciful grace by miraculously providing a, a ram as a substitute for Isaac's life when Abraham takes him to sacrifice him in obedience to God. And again, it's a, a, a picture for us. It's a, it's a foreshadowing, if you will, of, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So Abraham was the father of God's chosen people and from whom would come Jesus. And, David, and made David the father of the royal line of, from whom the Messiah would descend. In Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, to your descendants for, or offspring or seed, I will give this land. And it would have been a descendant of Abraham who would be the final one to inherit the kingdom of Israel. And that's Jesus. And then the promise came to David years later, hundreds of years later, God made a covenant with David and in 2 Samuel, it says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So again, only someone from the family of David could be king and that's Jesus. So this is why Matthew begins his gospel with this account of a straightforward and simple but at the same time, vitally important thesis for his Jewish readers in verse one of Matthew chapter one. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. So this list of names becomes exhibit A proof that Jesus really does have the pedigree to be the long-awaited Messiah. And Matthew divides the names in the three groups. Look on your outline, you've got them there. From Abraham to David, <clears throat> from David to the Babylonian captivity, and then from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. And we're gonna get to the Babylonian captivity. We'll talk about that. But I'll tell you one thing here. If Jesus' family is this dysfunctional, can you expect your family to not be? Sometimes we look at our families and we're going, man, I've got a dysfunctional family. Well, you know, if you think your family is dysfunctional, it is. But look at Jesus. 
Look at, the fam- look at the people in his lineage. We're going to talk about some of them. Um, but every f- like a friend of mine wrote a book called Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Him. Uh, every family is normal till you get to know him. And then you see that we're all, every, there are no exceptions. We're all messed up. Um, in each of these groups that Matthew highlights, there are 14 names. He leaves out some people who are not as well known. That was a common practice. And he adds in others, specifically, something that was never done, he had women in this genealogy. It's, it's clear that this genealogy was, was, isn't meant to present an exhaustive, precise, just the facts presentation of Jesus' lineage. Uh, it, it provides a summary of the ancestry of Jesus. And that's sufficient to satisfy the Jewish mind that is reading this gospel. Matthew's writing to them. So Matthew seems to be interested in teaching his Jewish readers something about Jesus, not just the lineage, but something more. And that's the gospel. We see God's grace here. And I I want you to be able to read this and and never look at a genealogy in the same way again that's in the Bible. Um, but Matthew used a particular way of presenting the material that would have particularly appealed to the Jewish mind. So the second thing we see in these verses, in verses two through six, is that Jesus turns the things of the world upside down. Jesus turns the things of the world upside down. In the first century, your resume wasn't about what you'd accomplished. It was about your family and who you were connected to. A person's genealogy was a a way that they connected themselves to other people. So genealogy was super important. In the first century, if if someone didn't like people in their family, they just left them out. Um, Jesus does the opposite and includes people that you would think would never be included in a genealogy. That, that had to, in, the, in spite of the fact that it was perfect for the Jewish mind, they had to be wondering about some of these things, and there's some lessons here. But the, the women that he mentions, he mentions five women, including Mary, and in ancient times, uh, you wouldn't have included a woman in an official lineage. lineage. Um, and most of the women he mentions are Gentiles. So even in the list of names, God wants us to know that the gospel is for everyone which is why we're, we're offering the missions course, because we want you to know that God's heart is for the nations. It's not just for you as an individual. It's not just for us as a, as a people. It's not just for our country. It's for every country in the world, which is why we pray for a different country every week. We want everyone's heart to grow for the world. And that's an important thing, because God so loved the United States. That's not what it says. God so loved the world. And so he gives us the world where to pray for the world. So in the first century, women and Gentiles were considered at this time to be unclean. They would have never been allowed in the tabernacle. And so these women who are mentioned are not just outsiders by gender and by nationality because they were Gentiles, but they were outsiders morally. Again, they were messed up. Um, Verse three says this, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I don't know if you know the story of Tamar. It's in Genesis chapter 38, and it's a story of totally God's undeserved favor. 
of his grace. Tamar's story begins with the death of her husband, Ur, Judah's firstborn son. And in this time, it was customary for a widow to marry the brother of her deceased husband to continue the family line. That was the most important thing. But Ur's brother, Onan, had also died. And so, that leaving Tamar uh, childless and without the protection of marriage, and, and Tamar experienced the harsh realities of, of what it was like to be a widow. It was not easy. So when Tamar realized that Judah, her father-in-law, wasn't fulfilling his duty as a father-in-law to give her his third son in marriage, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law and gets pregnant by him. She was absolutely deceptive, but her motivation was for justice. Her motivation was for, for the continuation of the family line. And when Judah discovers that Tamar is pregnant, he initially condemns her, but then finally acknowledges his failure to do his duty and, and fulfill his duty and, and, and re- recognizes Tamar's motivation as good. And in this recognition, we see that God's grace is greater than even the most difficult circumstances you could be in. I know, maybe you think of a circumstance you're in right now and you're thinking, where is the grace of God? God, where are you in this horrible circumstance that I'm in right now? But you need to understand that God is in control. And he's even in our difficult circumstances that we can't see. And so where does Tamar end up? She ends up in the lineage of Jesus. That's God's grace. Verse five begins, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Uh, I'm guessing more of you know the story of Rahab than the story of Tamar. Uh, But the story of Rahab is in Joshua chapters two and six. She was a prostitute, but she's remembered for her role in helping the Israelite spies uh, who had been sent into Jericho. She hid them and then she helped them to escape. And she demonstrated by that her faith in God. And we see again God's unmerited favor extending even to a woman who was a prostitute with a questionable past. And her willingness to align herself with God's people and to trust God shows the transforming power of God's favor, of God's loving kindness, of the grace of God. And this is available to you regardless of your past. I've had people come and say to me, Kenny, you don't don't even know where I've been. You don't know, you're not even gonna want me in your church when I tell you what I've done. And, and, and I hear what they've done, and I've said, you know what? You know that God's forgiveness is greater than your sin. God's grace is greater than your sin. So you go to God, you repent, and God will forgive you. That's what he's offering you. And then verse five continues, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Again, Ruth came from Moab, a country that had been in conflict with Israel more than once. And after the death of her husband, Ruth stays close to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her loyalty and her selflessness uh, demonstrate, again, God's redemptive love working in her life. And and she goes from being a widow 
in a foreign land to being married to Boaz and becoming part of, a, again, the significant family line of Jesus, another woman. The birth of Obed, the, verse five, the father of Jesse, and verse six, Jesse, the father of King David. And we see in Ruth that God's supernatural mercy and grace can transform the ordinary circumstances of life that you go through into redemption and purpose. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants you to be redeemed, he wants you to come to the Father, and he wants to give you purpose in your life, that you live your life with a purpose of knowing God and making God known to others. One more, still in verse six, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So why doesn't Matthew just put Bathsheba's name there? We all know it was Bathsheba. Why call her Uriah's wife? Well, remember, Uriah was one of David's best friends. He was one of the mighty men who put his life on the line to save David from Saul. And later when David became king, he looked at his best friends, one of his best friend's wives and said, I want her for myself. And then he sends Uriah off in battle and has him killed, murdered, so that he could marry Bathsheba. And from her, Solomon came. So it's not a slight against Bathsheba that she's not mentioned. It's highlighting David's sin again. So all of these outsiders are in Jesus' lineage, in his genealogy. You know, in Old Testament times, illegitimate children, prostitutes, foreigners, adulterers could not come into the physical presence of God in the tabernacle. They were not allowed. And yet, they're in Jesus' official family history. What does this mean? You've got it on your outline. First of all, people who were excluded by culture or by society or even by God's law, Jesus brings them in. He brings us all in where we can have access to God. Through Jesus, we can come boldly before the throne of God with our requests. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's unmerited favor can cover you. And then secondly, King David had everything uh, in his day. He was a male. He was a Jew. He was wealthy. And yet what he did was worse than what any of these other women did. But King David, he also needs and receives God's redemptive grace, his love. And for David, it was in the future. But for us, we look back to the past, and this is on your outline, our standing before God is based on what Jesus has already done for us. Every other religion, every other religion is what you need to do to get to heaven. But Christianity is about what Jesus has already done for us. And all we we have to do is receive this amazing free gift, and, and we have the gift of salvation. So if you believe in Jesus, this is on your outline, and you accept the good news, then at the cross, we are all equal. The cross is the great leveler. That's amazing. And what we learn here, again on your outline, is that God is not ashamed of us. 
what happened when the what happened when the prodigal son came home? The father threw a party. No one should have had more shame than the prodigal son. Because what he did was just a bonehead, stupid move. But what does the father do when he comes back? He throws him a party. That's what God wants to do in heaven for you when you come to him. He wants to throw you a party. That's who God is. Our God is a loving father. And the third thing we see in this genealogy is that godliness and righteousness are not inherited. In the next verses, 7 through 10, really verses 7 and 8, you've got a list of, of, of kings, both good kings and bad kings. The good kings uh, are listed there. You've got the list of them on your outline. Bad kings and the wicked kings in the same verses. So what do we learn from that? Here's the truth of that. We see in this list of names, there's an interconnectedness, but we also see that every human being stands as an individual before God. Just be, you don't inherit this. You don't inherit your godliness from your parents. I wish we did sometimes. Parents wish they could pass it on, but it's every individual has to come right before God and deal with Jesus as an individual. In, first John, in John chapter one, it says this, to all who received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to all who believed in him, to all who received him. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So you might have or have had parents who were genuine Christians. You might have a godly family. But godliness is not automatic. It doesn't come to, every person has to confront Jesus Christ himself. Have you done that? Have you done business with God? Have you, before God, said, this is who Jesus is for me? Is he your personal savior? Is he your Lord? Through all of this, God never gives up on his people. He never breaks his promises. That's the truth. And then the fourth thing we see in these verses, in verses 11 to 16, is that God's power is able to keep his promises. Verse 11 takes us to the Babylonian captivity, and then verse 12 is after the captivity. So the Babylonian captivity was a pivotal event for the Jews. Uh, If they were all forced to relocate 500 miles to the east... If you look at 500 miles to the east of Jerusalem, it's not very pretty. <clears throat> a lot of desert. It'd be like saying, pack your bags right now, and we're all moving to Tucson, Arizona. That's about 500 miles away from here. And, uh, and you're never coming back, or you don't know you're ever coming back. They were in Babylon for 70 years. It'd be like us going, not knowing when we'd, coming, when we'd be coming back, but we'd be coming back as a people in 2093. That's a long ways from now. It wouldn't be us probably coming back. It might be our children or our grandchildren. It, it, so in verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon... And then verse 12, after the exile to Babylon. So we read in verse 12 about Zerubbabel and who took the return to Jerusalem and started to rebuild the temple. 
if, if you, I want to remember who started rebuilding the temple that was in rubble. It was Zerubbabel. Anyway, that was for free. So God's power is seen in his delivering of these people through terrible times, like the Babylonian captivity. Uh, why is the Babylonian captivity so important here? Matthew wants to stress that God alone can save a, a, a nation of people going through a great trial. It, it, was, it was like taking, like if the, they took the entire nation hostage and held them hostage for 70 years. And Matthew was saying, God preserved the Jews through a time that seemed impossible to get through. And it was an attempt to stamp them out as a nation. And God did it to preserve the line of the Messiah who was to come. And because of this, as believers, we can rest assured that God keeps his promises. And so despair, are you going through a time of despair or depression or anxiety or loneliness or lack of purpose? Those can all be conquered by Jesus. So I'll take us back to 1 John for a moment. 1 John chapter 5 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When things get tough and difficult, it motivates us to go back and get even stronger in our relationship with God the Son. In Matthew 1, verse 16, look at verse 16, it says, And Jacob brought forth Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom, brought for, from whom was brought forth Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And this makes Jesus the legal, not the physical, son of Joseph, and therefore the heir to the Davidic throne. And in verse 17 is a summary statement says this, there were there, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the, to the Messiah. And these, the division of these three clusters into 14 years is entirely Matthew's doing. It's not in the Old Testament. So why does Matthew go out of his way to present the legal ancestry of Jesus in these three groups of 14 it has everything to do with his presentation of the genealogy in a style that would appeal to the Jewish audience he was writing to. And Matthew's message is clear from, from what we read here, that Jesus is the second David. He's the Messiah who was to restore the power and the glory and the kingdom promised to the first David. That's what it all is pointing to. So the genealogy isn't just a list of names that are hard to pronounce. We recognize the practical truths that are woven through this list and the gospel. I want you to see the gospel that's woven even into this genealogy. And so we see Abraham's deceptions and, and Judah's conspiring even against his brothers, uh, against Joseph with his brothers. We didn't even talk about that. Tamar's seduction and Rahab's prostitution, and David's adultery, and David's murder, and on and on and off again, the on again, off again, half-heartedness of some of the kings. And what does this tell us? It's on your outline. God's grace excludes no one. If these men and women can be included in the genealogy of Jesus, then sinners like us can be included in the family of God. And so this should give all of us great hope 
And as we, as we enter into this Christmas season, enter into it with the hope that of, of who you are in Christ. And that God's purpose for you is to know God and to love the people that God brings into your life. One hymn writer put it like this, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. So have you had that personal encounter with Christ? Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message, for the gospel message that Jesus came to earth and lived a sinless life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again from the dead to offer salvation to all who believe in him. Lord, I trust that this Christmas season for everyone here, if they haven't trusted you, that they would begin, even this morning, by trusting you as their savior, by becoming a son or a daughter of God. Father, please let Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and, and, and everyone in here just move us to repent and believe in Jesus. We love you so much. Thank you for these lessons, Lord. Help us not to forget them. And thank you that we can be, begin this Christmas season with knowing that it's all about the grace of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction. This is from Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah the prophet writes, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. And just let me say this. If God has spoken to your hearts, as we always do, we're going to have some folks up front to pray with you, to listen to any way that God has spoken to you and they want to pray with you. They're available. Please take advantage of it. And please don't leave without introducing yourself uh, to someone next to whom you are sitting. God bless. Have a great day.